We're slowly but surely working our way through Mark's gospel, uh, heading towards Calvary, towards the cross of Christ. And there's so much in each of these passages. Uh, it's worth us taking our time uh, to try and get uh, the full gravity of what Jesus does in his sacrifice. So please keep your Bibles open. There's an outline of the talk inside the news sheet. And uh, uh, after the talk, there'll be an opportunity for some questions. Um, so we'll do that. How about I pray now? as we come to look at God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us and you've gathered us here tonight to hear you speak to us about this amazing event when Jesus sacrificed himself for us, that we'd be saved and set free. So Father, please help us to listen to your Word as you speak. Help us to understand who Jesus is. Help us to be transformed by this knowledge that we are loved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love reading books. Uh, and there was a time when I used to love reading serious books like literature. My favorite book of all time was Jane Eyre, closely followed by Wuthering Heights. But you know, I read the Russian classics. I love that stuff. Uh, well, I used to. Now, if it doesn't have lots of explosions or a magic sword, then I can't read it. Like I just need to kind of fantasy or action. That's all I got left anymore. But back in the day, I used to read stuff that actually meant something. And uh, when I did, I read this book called A Search for the Christian God. And uh, there's this professor, academic guy, uh, who is trying to figure out if the God revealed in the Bible is real. Is he true? Is the Bible right? So he goes searching for the Christian God. The way he does that is he reads the Bible a couple of times to figure out if, if this God is real. He, he looks at church history. He does all the research he possibly can. He, he, he spends lots of time trying to be objective and look at the evidence and think, is the Christian God real? Uh, the problem is, as he keeps reading about God in the Bible, he keeps being confronted by a God of power, a God of judgment, uh, a God who rules everything. And it actually makes him uncomfortable. He frequently uses this line in his book. He keeps saying, I'm searching for a God I can believe in. And after doing all the research and after reading the Bible, he decides at the end of his book that the God presented in the Bible, the God of Christianity, is not a God that he can believe in. Which is interesting to me because basically he's using this category as a way of saying that the truth of whether God exists or not is dependent on whether he meets my expectations. I'll believe God exists if he's the kind of God I was looking for. Because if he's not what I was thinking, then he can't be true. Can you hear the arrogance of that? To think the only thing that can exist is something that I would imagine. I read the words of the God who is real and I compare him to the God I would like to be real. They don't match. Therefore, the real God has to go. And my picture of God gets to stay. That's brazen. That the God who created the universe and who personally created each of every one of us, the God who is holy and eternal and all-knowing and all-powerful, he needs to fit in my comfortable box of expectations. I get to define who God is. I get to define what God is like. And he needs to fit around me. It's a complete role reversal at that point, isn't it? Where the God who creates us and defines us and tells us how to live, we're doing the opposite back to him. This is the arrogance of mankind. See, we want God, we like him being there throughout history, it has always been the case, but we want God on our terms. 
We want God to be manageable. We want him to fit into our expectations. And when he doesn't, we have the audacity to suggest he is wrong. Because he's too angry or he's too powerful or he's too controlling or he's not controlling enough. It's a lot like our society. When it comes to God, people, their mind is already made up. They've already made up their mind. And that's why it's hard when we try and share the gospel with them. We try and share the Bible with them. We try and say, come along to church. The reality is when it comes to God, their mind is already made up. And this is exactly what we see happening in our passage today as Jesus is dragged before these religious leaders, this council of the, the chief priests. These are the ones who were meant to teach about God and, te- and lead people to God. He's dragged before the religious leaders and basically we see God on trial. And verse 55 tells us what kind of trial it is. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, that's this council that's gathered, were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they could find none. See that? They've already decided what needs to happen. They've already decided what their conclusion is. Now they try and find some evidence to fit that. They're looking for testimony against... They're not looking for the truth. They're not trying to figure out who is this guy. Let's, let's figure out what he claims. Let's actually sit down and look at the facts. The truth is standing there in front of them, but they're not interested. They already want to put him to death. They're just trying to figure out how. They need to reject him and kill him. And so they look for testimony against him. It's so like our world. Our world just grasps at any opportunity, any excuse not to believe in God or trust in Jesus. They'll believe anything. The reason they can't find the evidence that they need is because verse 56 tells us many were giving false testimony against them, uh, but their testimonies didn't agree. Now, remember, these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the ones who teach God's word, who teach the law, who teach how to live. And remember, the ninth commandment out of 10 commandments that God gave Israel was, you shall not give false testimony. And here are the religious leaders arranging for as many people as possible to give false testimony so that they can commit murder. This is a high quality legal procedure, isn't it? And here's the thing. If you're going to arrange for false testimony and some, you're going to invent some evidence, at least could you make it consistent? But I guess that's the thing about lying, isn't it? I'm sure we've all noticed this and figured this out. Whenever you lie, you end up needing another lie, and then another lie, a whole bunch of lies around that one to try and protect this first lie because it never all fits together and you have to keep trying to keep lying and lying and that's the thing about deceiving and it's what's happening here. Now, the one specific piece of false testimony that we we are told is brought is in verse 58 where someone says, hey, we heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Now, at first, that sounds a lot like what Jesus actually did say when he was in the temple. But can you see the lie in it? Just like Satan, he always takes the truth, he twists it. It's always a half-truth with a lie. That's how Satan always works. In fact, have a look at it and shout out, if you can tell me, what makes that a lie? What is the lie about that statement? It's not the bit about the made by human hands. 
Because the, 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 that building was made by human hands and he's talking about his resurrection body. That's not the bit I think that's the lie. That's not the lie because he will raise it up in three days. He needs resurrection, you know. Well, I actually think that's, that is, is right. I think that is his point, that the new temple, the new presence of God is his body come back from the dead. That's not built by human hands. Uh, that's the new temple and it, it is raised. That's the distinction, a building versus not a building. I think that's right. Where's the lie? The yeah, I will what? I being Jesus rather than God the Father. Will what? Destroy it and rebuild it. The lie is that they accuse him of saying he's going to demolish. He never says that. He doesn't say he's going to destroy the temple. Uh, in fact, what Jesus had actually said, what, he enters the temple and it turns out the religious leaders have turned this place of holiness coming before God for forgiveness. They've turned it into a marketplace and they're making all sorts of cash. Jesus goes in, you know, pushes them all out and says, what is going on? Uh, you, you've ruined my father's house. And then the Jews come up and demand a sign and say, what authority do you have? And he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And John's gospel goes on to explain he's talking about the temple of his body at his resurrection. Jesus doesn't threaten destruction. He promises restoration and rebuilding and resurrection. That's what he's come to do to save and restore. But he's saying, if you destroy this temple, then I will raise it. He's saying, if you destroy the presence of God in the world, which is me. Again, he never said he was going to destroy anything. Again, they're lying. In fact, they're the ones who are planning to demolish the temple. That is, they're going to kill Jesus. The thing they're accusing him of, they're about to do. The presence of God in the flesh. But he promises he's going to raise it up in three days. See how even as these guys think they're putting Jesus on trial. The reality is it's the other way around. And all the way through, it's their guilt that's being revealed. They lie, they desire to kill. It's, it's their guilt that's on display and their testimonies still don't agree. So the high priest, the guy who's in charge, he stands up and he says to Jesus, don't you have an answer for all these accusations? Why does he need an answer for all these accusations when they're all self-contradictory and wrong anyway? And so Jesus' answer is silence. Because just as they've made up their mind beforehand and they're going to stick to their lies because they want to kill him, Jesus has made up his mind beforehand and he's going to stick to the truth. He's going to trust God and he's going to let them. And that's why he is silent. He has a plan. He has a purpose to fulfill God's promises, which means he has to suffer and die. So the high priest again asks him, verse 61, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And very simply, Jesus says, I am. And just to take it a step further, he then promises, and you will all see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus at that point is referring to two Old Testament passages about the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the promised King who would come. In Psalm 110, God says to his promised King, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Jesus making this claim about himself that God is about to say to him, sit here at my right hand and reign with me. Sit here enthroned with me and let me go defeat all your enemies and then pile them on the ground before you so that you can rest your feet on them. This is a massive promise from God to give complete and utter victory to his king. And the second reference in that, what Jesus says is part of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel is given a vision of one like a son of man, approaching God, the ancient of days, coming of the clouds of heaven and receiving the eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying to these men, all of you are about to see God demonstrate, I am the king. You're about to see it. And what this means is Jesus understands that him dying on the cross is the moment he becomes the ruler of God's eternal kingdom. When he dies for our sins is when he establishes God's perfect eternal kingdom. When he serves us by taking our punishment in our place, that's when he proves himself worthy to rule God's kingdom forever as the servant king. And when he washes us clean by his blood... That's when he fills and populates God's kingdom with a great multitude of forgiven sinners. There's a reason why on the cross, the sign above his head says, the king, the king of the Jews. There's a reason why he has a crown on his head, even though it's a crown of thorns. You see, it might not look very impressive. It might not seem very powerful. It might look weak and foolish to the world. It might not fit into our preconceived notions of who God is and what God should do. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is, in fact, the glory of God revealed. Jesus' suffering and death is the power of God to save sinners and bring forgiveness. It's the wisdom of God and the mercy of God and the compassion of God and the justice of God. It's shown perfectly and completely the moment Jesus becomes the king. Now, how does the high priest react when he receives this awesome news that the long-awaited king has arrived? The whole de- Old Testament is filled with these promises. The king is coming and he will make everything right. The king is coming and he will save you and protect you. He will guide you and feed you and lead you. It's going to be spectacular. The king is coming and he's just found out the king is here. How does he react? Verse 63, he tore his robes. Tearing the robes is a sign of mourning. It's a sign of grief. It's a sign that disaster has come. When Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh and says, God's message to you is, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed, they all tore their robes. When Job finds out, a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 1, in our second reading from Job, when he finds out his children have been killed, his houses have been destroyed, his flocks have all been stolen, he tears his clothes. It's a sign of disaster. But this guy's just heard the best news ever. Try that next time someone says, hey, we just got engaged or we just, we're just we pregnant or I just got a promotion or I just got a job or whatever. <laughs> Tear your clothes and gnash your teeth and sit in sackcloth and ashes and mourn. This is the best news ever. You know what else is interesting? We've got a bit of a theme of the high priests and the Sanhedrin just breaking every law they can find. Leviticus 10 verse 6 says, Moses specifically says to the priests, 
you must not tear your robes or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the community. They're breaking laws left, right and center. They don't care about God or his word. So he tears his robes and he says, why do you still need witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him to death. And my question is, why is it blasphemy? What has Jesus said wrong? All he's done is quote two Old Testament passages. Theoretically, these are the guys who believe that the Son of Man will receive the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're going to see it. They already believe God will give his king victory over his enemies. Jesus says, you're going to see it. What has Jesus said? It's not blasphemy. You know what the problem is? Jesus isn't who they were expecting. And so they kill him for it. You don't fit my expectations. You don't fit my idea. You're not what I was thinking. So you must be wrong and we must kill you. See, we shouldn't be surprised that we live in a world that rejects Jesus offhand. The default position of our world is the rejection of Jesus. And it's only by the mighty supernatural power of God that anyone ever accepts Jesus as king. They refuse to let God be God. That's the heart of the problem. So it's not really a trial. And you can see that because the moment they've all decided that they've got permission to kill Jesus, they begin to mistreat him. So they spit on him and they beat him and they blindfold him and they mock him and, and he just takes it. Well, then the scene moves from Jesus, as it were, in the courthouse to Peter down below in the courtyard. Jesus has stood firm in the trial and continues to trust God. Peter, on the other hand, shows human weakness and is about to fail and fall. Now, Peter really wants to follow Jesus, doesn't he? Uh, verse 66 tells us he's in the courtyard. The passage had begun with Peter following along. Jesus is being interrogated and beaten and, and Peter's there. He wants to be there. Earlier in the chapter, verse 29, verse 31, he'd said, I will never leave you. Even if everyone else runs away, I will never run away. Even if I have to die with you, I will die for you. He, he really wants to follow Jesus. But here is the question. For everyone who wants to follow Jesus... If you follow Jesus, are you willing to go where he goes? Are you willing to be treated the way he is treated? Are you willing to follow him all the way and be rejected by the world and mocked by the world and physically attacked by the world? You can't be a Christian and accepted and loved by the world. You've got to pick one. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to give him up for the world? Or will you only follow Jesus when he leads you where you want to go? Will you only follow Jesus when it's comfortable, when it's easy, when it's convenient? See, Peter had to make a choice. The choice in, in the end is between Jesus and himself. I can preserve myself and protect myself or I can follow Jesus. And he chooses himself, doesn't he? Because look at the pressure that is brought to bear on Peter. A servant girl sees him and says, you're with Jesus, weren't you? Just the immense, relentless 
pain and the interrogation and the torture that Peter goes through. And finally, eventually, after being asked by a young girl for one second, he finally breaks. Man, he was tough. But look at that. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. She tells some others and then she sees him again and says, oh, I'm pretty sure. And he says, no, he denies it again. And then the other saying, surely you're one of them. He started to curse and swear and adamantly, vehemently, absolutely deny, I don't know Jesus. And then the rooster crows a second time. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said a couple of hours before. And he began to weep. Peter is too weak to admit, even to a servant girl, he follows Jesus. Peter chooses to protect and save himself and reject Jesus while at that very moment, Jesus was giving himself up to protect and save Peter, who obviously didn't deserve it. You see, that's the case for every Christian. This is the truth that makes Jesus' sacrifice especially profound. Jesus gives his life. Jesus suffers. Jesus dies for people who reject him, ignore him, and shove him out of their lives. It's not the the really nice ones or the quite good ones or the people who've tried that Jesus dies for. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it like this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God. Jesus sacrifices himself and dies for people who don't want him, for people who kill him. And so here is Peter weeping in the early hours of the morning. It's not the end of Peter's story, but that's where Mark leaves us for the moment. Because now it is morning and Jesus is tied up and taken to the Roman governor, the proconsul, a guy whose name is Pilate. Jews uh, form an alliance with the nations. They've got the choice. We can follow Jesus or we can be like the world. They go with the world. They go to Pilate, the enemy, and they say, can you do us a favor? So Pilate wants to know in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, you've said it. And then the chief priests chime in. They repeat all sorts of accusations against Jesus, say all sorts of things, all sorts of lies. Again, Jesus stays silent. Jesus doesn't answer anything. Here's my question. Why does he do this? Why does he allow all these lies to be said about him? Why doesn't he do something? In fact, all the way through the gospel, every time he'd been tested, every time the chief priests or the the Sadducees or the Pharisees or scribes had come up to him to test him. He'd answered them clearly, powerfully, and he'd wiped the floor with them with the truth. But here he says nothing. Why doesn't he do something? See, it's interesting. People often ask the question of why God doesn't do something about suffering and evil. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he step in and stop it? But before we really understand the answer to that question, we need to grasp what's happening here. Why didn't God do anything? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't he step in when he was the one suffering? He just lets them do this. Silently, meekly, allows the lies and the rejection and the beating and the suffering and the death to take place to him. He doesn't call down 12 armies of angels. He doesn't smite them all. 
with just the lightning or whatever it is. Because the thing is, there is a reason for this suffering. There is a purpose for this suffering that makes it all worthwhile. God is in control even through suffering to bring about his spectacular purpose. And you see this purpose really in the next section. When an innocent man goes to execution so that a guilty man can go free. See, verse 6, Pilate has this custom at the time of the Passover festival to let one condemned criminal go free. The crowd come and beg Pilate, please release Barabbas to us, a murderer. Now imagine that. Imagine watching it on uh, TV or online or you're watching the news and there's a community, a crowd of people gathered and they're shouting and they're picketing a courthouse. They're protesting and begging the judge to set the murderer free. You never see that. You see the crowds there begging for the death penalty or begging to chuck them away. Or they also, but imagine a crowd saying, no, no, let the, prison, let the murderer go. But there they are. This is just kind of wrong, everything that's happening here. So Pilate says in verse 9, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Don't you want me to release Jesus? But you know what? Here we have the leaders of God's people. They're the shepherds of God's flock. They're responsible for the souls of the ones God has called to himself. They're meant to lead people to God, protect them and guide them and guard them. And what are they doing? They're actually leading people away from the truth. They're leading people away from God and they get them to choose a murderer over the one who gave them life. Jesus is described in Acts 3 as the author of life, the prince of life. And yet they choose the killer. This is a terrible moment. Jesus has come to his people full of grace and truth, full of mercy and love and the power to save and the power to heal and the power to give life. But verse 12, Pilate asked them, well, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. Not just throw him in prison or not. We don't really care. We just love Barabbas crucify him one of the most horrific ways of killing someone and Pilate says why what has he done wrong and there's no answer there's no proof there's no evidence there's no reason there's no logic there's just more shouting crucify him and that's where our society is at when it comes to discussing different points of view There's no logic or proof or argument or evidence. It's just who can shout loudest. And then we have permission to bash that person up. So Pilate faces a choice then, doesn't he? There's choices all the way through this passage. Pilate here, in many ways, is like your average Australian. Probably doesn't hate Jesus like this crowd does, but he's not exactly a born-again believer. He's kind of in the middle. But the reality is... There is no middle. There is no neutral. There is no sitting on the fence. You can't be halfway in between a yes to Jesus and a no to Jesus, to who he is and what he comes to do. Pilate shows us it is impossible to be neutral because even though he thinks Jesus should go free, even though he thinks Jesus has done nothing wrong, he knows the accusations are motivated by envy and the leaders are just jealous. He knows that. But verse 15, willing to gratify the crowd. Pilate wants to please the crowd. He wants the crowd to be happy with him. 
And so he releases a murderer and flogs an innocent man and sends him to be killed. He makes a choice. There is no middle. He is against Jesus. But in this moment, you really see a picture of us because we are Barabbas, guilty before God, sinful. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. But Jesus, the perfect, holy, righteous one, goes to death in our place so that we can be free, so that we can live, so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. All the way through these passages, Jesus is in complete control and Jesus chooses us because he could have saved himself. He could have spared himself suffering and death and mockery and rejection at any point. More significantly, he could have spared himself the spiritual suffering of having to drink the cup of his father's wrath. He could have walked away But Jesus goes to the cross. He allows himself to be killed because he chooses to love us. Jesus is the God we can believe in. He's the God we can rely on. He's the God we can trust in because he's the God who rules us and loves us so much. He died for us. And he rose again and he will reign forever. Well, before we spend a bit of time praying, uh, are there any questions that people might have about Russian literature or anything? Yeah, questions. Um, so, before I start, I was going to say, don't take this as trying to defend the chief priest or anything, but um, when, like in Mark 13, chapter 2, he says that like the disciples, one of his disciples says to him, look how impressive these buildings are, and he says, you know, uh, not one stone will be left. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And he does say that he, he knows that the temple will be destroyed. Um, and really, he's trying to help them to see that actually the way of relating to God is no longer about that building. That's going to be undone. And a new way of relating to God that's centered on him. So we don't have to go to a special place to relate to God. We go to Jesus. We go to a person. Um, but even in that, when he says this building isn't going to last, I don't think he's threatening that he's the one who is going to do away with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that that I'm the one who's come to... I think he's saying, I'll fulfill it and complete it, and it will be destroyed, but I will raise it. Do you know what I mean? Does that help? Yeah, cool. Other questions? Yeah. Is there any numerical significance to three denials and the cock running twice, or is it just that, so that when it happens, we know that it was foretold? Yeah, it's a good question. Is there any numerical significance? I mean, it's exactly how, Peter, how Jesus called it. And I think the, the rooster crowing twice is interesting, but it's because it's not just you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. It's, he knows exactly the details. It's not just before the rooster crows, but before the rooster crows the second time. He knows how many times the rooster's going to crow. He knows, like, it's just complete, fine, detailed knowledge. Jesus is that much in control. I think three is significant in terms of... Um, it's the, it's kind of a, a complete number in the sense of you need two or three witnesses against someone to bring a case. Uh, so to say it three times is really quite adamant. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that John's Gospel shows us this beautiful scene when the risen Lord Jesus meets 
the disciples again on the beach, just like he'd first met them while Peter's fishing and stuff. Again, he meets them while they're fishing, has some fun with them, cooks breakfast for them. And then in th- in, there's three times when he restores G- Peter to himself. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So uh, I think really it's three times he, he's just really adamant. Um, I think that's probably the numerical significance. But, but Jesus knows all the details. He knows exactly what's going on and what's coming. So, yeah. One more question. Three would be a complete number. So kind of, yeah. I'm not sure if they'd understand it, and maybe they, maybe that is part of their response, the blasphemy of... Because, uh, I mean, it is a statement that you can actually use that phrase just to say, I am, it's me. Um, but it is a phrase that's very similar. It is the same phrase that God uses of himself in the Old Testament to say to Moses, he's the one who's sending you to go save Israel from Egypt. Tell them, I am sent you. Uh, and so when Jesus uses that phrase, I think you are meant to to hear those reverberations of the Old Testament and Jesus knowing full well uh, his own identity and making those claims. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they actually got that bit and were really offended by that. He's saying, I'm not just the king that got promised, I'm God. Um, yeah, quite possibly. Cool. Excellent questions. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us with an everlasting love and your love is more than just a feeling or a sentiment. Your love is proven and demonstrated powerfully and deeply in Jesus going through all this for us. Thank you for his trust in you and for his love for us that meant he died to save us from sin, to save us from judgment and hell. Thank you so much that he now reigns as our glorious king forever and we long for the day when he comes back. So, Father, please protect us and, and help us to live in this world that hates you. Father, help us to share this amazing message with the people around us and please do your work, your mighty spiritual work of changing people's minds and helping them to see and know and love Jesus. Thank you once again, Father, for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.